Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, my name is John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Joel Amy and Theo Ellis from Wolf Alice, and producer Justin Meldell Johnson to talk about how they recorded and produced the album Visions of a Life. Wolf Alice are an alt-rock four-piece from North London, featuring the talents of Ellie Roussel, Joff Oddy, Joel Amy, and Theo Ellis. Formed in 2010 by lead vocalist Ellie and guitarist Joff, they released their first EP as a duo before expanding into a four-piece in 2012 with the addition of Joel on drums and Theo on bass. Their debut album, My Love Is Cool, was released in June 2015, scoring a plethora of nominations, most notably Brit, Mercury, Grammy and Ivor Novello shortlists. Following this success, the band began to explore options for their next album, which ultimately led them across the pond to record in LA, working with the legendary producer-performer Justin Meldell Johnson. In 2018, the album they created, Visions of a Life, went on to scoop the much-coveted Mercury Prize. Justin Meldell Johnson is an American producer, songwriter and bassist, best known for his work with Beck, Nine Inch Nails and M83. A musician long before he was a producer, it was in 1987 that Justin met Beck and formed a friendship that would eventually lead to him joining Beck's touring band and subsequently play on many of his albums. Over the years, Justin has recorded and toured with a staggering number of artists, including the likes of Nine Inch Nails, The Mars Volta, Dixie Chicks and Air, to name just a few. In 2005, Justin made the transition to the other side of the desk, where he parlayed extensive studio experience as a musician into the field of producing and engineering. Since then, Justin has gone on to produce a multitude of acts, including Paramore, M83, Jimmy Eat World and, of course, Wolf Alice. Today I'm here at Iguana Studios with Joel and Theo from Wolf Alice and over on the other side of the planet in Los Angeles we're joined by Justin Meldell Johnson and what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record.
What a glorious noise. That was Yuck Fu, Wolf, Alice, and it's interesting to start with that one because in some ways that's one of the extremes of the album because the album covers so much ground. You now, Yuck Fu is one extremity, and then we're going to delve into various other aspects of the album as well. We're going to look at three tracks today, Visions of a Life, Formidable Cool, and St. Purple and Green. But, Theo, you were just telling me that Yuck Fu was actually the first song you started working on. It was the first song we started working on, but I was saying it would be a good one to do the show because I remember it was the first one where we caught a vibe where it came together the song like after we'd um taken it from one studio and into the little space in eagle rock we were working at and uh, i remember that sub drop that got created mm. justin and i remember all of us losing our minds mm. um and yeah it was just it was i think for, for for us it was one of those moments where it's like you know a bit of a eureka moment where we just felt something coming together and real excitement about the record was going i mean we we're excited about everything to that point but personally i think maybe i felt just buzzing when i heard had that kind of come together in, in, in the glory that I had imagined and hoped it would. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, how did you end up working with Justin? Because you'd been working back home in London mm. on demos for the record. Yeah, we, we'd been working in, in a place called The Fortress, which was uh, in East London. It's unfortunately closed down now. Uh, and that's kind of where all of the writing and stuff was done in, in bulk. And we had this weird serendipitous thing of watching Justin play bass at Electric Picnic Festival maybe 2013 or something yeah. like a long time ago and he was playing bass for Beck and we all watched this performance in the rain and we all were like oh my god that was so, that was like this incredible show like amazing show that we all love so much and Justin was playing bass and it, we were like god that fucking bass player was so cool and crazy and one thing led to another and Ellie started bringing up this Ravenettes record which I'm now not going to be able to remember the title of which is terrible Justin can it's called Peahi and she just like we're we're quite bad with realizing what when we like a producer's style or a sound, and he was he'd done that record, and we loved it so much, and it had such a good understanding of these guitar elements, and then we also kind of were being pointed in the way of the stuff he'd done with M eighty three and other projects, and we saw this scope, and kind of saw the scope of the songs as well. And I think it, he, I think Justin was mentioned to us by someone, but I don't remember who it was. I think it was our, wasn't it our label, Justin? I swear. Well, I, thought it, I thought it might have been Jamie. Yeah, I think it was oh, Jamie. Okay. Mr. Jamie well, Oberman from we'll Day not, Here. We'll give him no credit for that. It was me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm joking. I believe I hope, it was, yeah. I hope you're not listening to this, Jamie. Um, and uh, yeah, and we, we Skyped. Right. And so you just Skyped and just had a conversation. Yeah, like a nice free kind of flowing chat. I think it was very creative and very broad about what we wanted to do and where we were at. And Justin, the way he responded to the songs that and the ideas that were very basically outlined in these demos, like there were sketches, mm. was really astute. And I think adhering to what we just that kind of conversation that came from those was inspiring and I think that was kind of when we were like, oh, okay, this would be an amazing opportunity to work with Justin. Not yeah. that it wouldn't anyway, but you know. So, so Justin, you'd heard these demos that they'd been working on at the Fortress in East London, um, yeah. and then so that was without them in the room. This was <laughs> yeah, it was it was a very millennial process. So cyber. you were able to make up your own judgments about it, and then we, you you were drawn to this this world of Wolf Alice then. Oh yeah, for sure, because I'd I'd been familiar with their EPs and their 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 full length prior to that, and it was all very alluring even before I heard a new batch of demos that was going to be the, the basis for the body of work for Visions of a Life. And then someone, I believe, it, again, it was Jamie, sent me the demos, and they had this rough-hewn but very visionary quality to them. In other words, they, they were rough, but they created a, a universe under themselves. It's hard to explain, but they had an aesthetic that I felt very magnetized by. And so, yeah, we Skyped and set it off. Yeah, 
I mean, I love the idea that it's just a a kind of Skype conversation. It seems so casual. Yeah. And and then you fly out to LA. Well, actually, no, actually. Justin flew to us. Didn't you? Did you, you flew to yeah. us at that point. Yeah, in December of 2016, I flew yeah, to London. That's wild. And they were in the fortress. Was that where you were? That, yeah, yeah. The fortress. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so we went in there, and they and I sort of became familiar with their environment and how they're working, and and we did the quote unquote pre-production, which is you know the immediately setting to work of deconstructing the songs and finding out what new parts people could play and mm. strategizing different things that would come later and you know all those sort of things and and of course also had a few drinks and had some meals and did the usual things that people do when they uh, a couple of full English breakfasts at the Nile Cafe we did that didn't we yeah we did a lot of sausages and beans it got a lot more colourful when we went to LA yeah it did uh, however (laughs) I would say though that by the time we hit Cindy's restaurant we still stuck to the brown oh yeah man yes that was good I love that place pick up Cindy's I want an endorsement yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um we thought we'd go straight in at the deep end with Visions of a Life uh, yeah, to, yeah. Dis- to uh, discuss this uh, epic piece of drone rock and <laughs> Russian folk music. Or, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Or, or yeah. whatever it is. Um, and We don't know. We actually have the demo of, of this to have a listen to. Yeah. So yeah. should we have a listen to the demo first? Because um, I think that seems like a good idea. Because, I mean, because the, the, the actual song yeah. is, is in different sections, different movements, you could say. Yeah, I think there's we probably... We did say right. different yeah. movements. Yeah, yeah. It was we? split up on a whiteboard first, second and third. No, nah, right. mate, it was, but, it was a cardboard box. <laughs> oh, sorry, it was a cardboard box, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a cardboard box, yeah. <laughs> but the, the demo, the title of the demo um, that we have is Massive Anal Bleach Attack. Yeah, man, big time. Which yep. is... It's got to happen I mean, sometimes. It's a shame that you dropped that. Yeah. It's, it's a shame it's a sh- it's not a shame though is it? <laughs> like it's not but it, it, it was but funny it, it was funny when uh, our label people had to say it in meetings yeah <laughs> so i'm intrigued um by what was on the demo you know d- did it have all those movements in the demo i think you can hear them quite distinctly mm. Mm. Um, yeah it did yeah it yeah. was it it this started in our manager's basement this is why i think they might even say east city demo after it which is where we kind of really early started putting all the ideas together and this is an amalgamation of something joff had and i think two things eddie had That's and then right. yeah and then we just kind of as when it was just the four of us working on it did a hash together of things kind of crudely and it's just on logic so it's all just like me playing midi drum kit and it's all like one tempo and it's just you know this, You'll hear this, it. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're like, let's not be around the bush. <laughs> yeah, you'll hear it. So all the drums there are the MIDI drums. So that's just you. I think it's just like Joss guitar and one amp in our manager's basement. And we just did everything very simply. Like that's just a MIDI keyboard beat. And obviously Ellie's just doing all the vocals. This was Joff's idea. This like section was something he'd had then the riff. And I think the lyrics as well to an extent.
And then as the song progresses, I mean, it goes through these different changes and these different movements. Now, did they come from boredom with this section <laughs> and thinking, right, we've done that, let's let's move on? Or did was it those ideas and you think, right, let's bring those two together, that would be brilliant. There was I, like three main ones, wasn't there? There was like a demo called Hyro or Hero or something that Ellie had. Mm. And this one was another thing that... Joff, I, I literally can't remember for what rationale we smashed these things together. Yeah. But we did it and we were like... I kind of feel like someone literally said they would sound quite good together, which someone always says when you have no idea how to finish yeah. an idea. <laughs> uh, and like, was, let's stick it together with the other thing. And in, and, a, in a way, it's kind of, I suppose, due to the, the situation we were in, we didn't have a space, I don't think, when we were creating this and we were kind of just... That what the amazing like violence you can do with what you've created on Logic is just cut things and like throw yeah. things around and we're not playing it live. Do you know what I mean? We're not learning new parts, so we were literally kind of splicing bits of songs and and, and um, it, it yeah, it could, definitely that doesn't work all the time. But in this case, it was kind of we were like we were intrigued. I don't think we were convinced though because we were like it did sound quite um, mad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was convinced. I was definitely convinced. <laughs> what did it remind like, you of, Justin? What were you thinking of when you heard it? And I didn't have a reference in mind. I just knew that it 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 felt like because I was aware of Wolf Alice as a performance entity. I was aware of their live prowess and their their capabilities. It felt to me like why couldn't this be something that is performed as an ensemble, top to bottom, in a studio environment? Just the idea of doing something that it's it, see it's not prog, but it has this it has conventions of prog and that there's meter changes and there's a length to it and has this epic feeling and there's key changes and all this stuff. But mm. I don't know. I just thought this is sick. Why why can't they? Why can't we just do this as such and do it live and and have it as a performance piece? Mm. And of course, between this demo and the final result, there's a lot of work. In yeah. terms of the the exact tempo of each section, the mm. treatments of everything, um, you know, different overdubs and layers that would then inform the size and scope of each section, or to make things maybe even smaller at certain points, and you know, so there's a lot to it, and especially because you know it is seven minutes fifty seconds of music. So, mm. um, anyway, yeah, that's just my take on it. Yeah, I think like having that faith as well in the four of us who were quite self-deprivating about what we can do with our instruments and. At no point in our career ever have we ever tried to speak up as players, if you know what I mean. And it's almost been like, when we first started, it was like kind of frustrating to hear that half the charm about us was the fact we couldn't really play any of our <laughs> songs properly. So like to actually get to mm. a stage with a second record where it's like, actually, fuck it, we're going to do an eight minute long That's right. one take. Everyone's playing everything at the same time. Yep. Free movements track. Like you just get like kind of a kick out of the idea of even attempting it and we me and theo like you know we didn't really have a space to practice like all the time but we had it this time when we were it's little things like the sections between each movement and stuff we just drilled those things and we would do that feel again and again which is so obvious yeah. but wasn't what we'd done before one of the know? cool mm. aspects of this song is that it's made uh, me or uh, well, and joel i mean all of us to an extent but definitely for me and him made, I, I think it's through working out and learning it and practicing it and stuff has kind of opened a door to being more feeling a, a more degree of confidence as well mm. of what you do and then obviously solidifying that with touring it to the extent we have is it's really cool in the way that this song is what it means to me in a multifaceted way now yeah. because of that experience as a musician and as and as I, I think it's definitely one of our proudest moments as players 
Mm. Oh, um, definitely. So, and and so the, the ambition after thinking about the demo and working out, you know, what's going to go where and how you're going to do it, mm. then the ambition was to do it all as one take, Justin. Was that, is that what you oh, wanted? Yeah. With a click slowing down? No, and there was no click. That, no, that, well, click, at a certain point, there was out. a click. Oh, the click sorry. dropped out. Sorry, I'm, I'm, over, I'm overselling myself there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Actually, there was a little bit of click. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, the idea was that we'd give ourselves a guide, but that we yeah. would, you know, uh, at some point set off. And, and um, it was always in my mind to do it as a one-take performance, mm. 100%. Why, why I knew they could. But it was... You, because it's a sick idea. Mm. <laughs> just because it's, it's, there's no other reason. It's just it's just because it would sound amazing to play it, not to manufacture it, not to edit it together as as like um, you know, say Bohemian and Rhapsody style, where you know mm. Queen is recording it in six different studios and whatever. I mean, all credit to to Queen. That's the most one of the most brilliant songs <laughs> ever recorded. I'm just saying, but 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 that song did come to mind as a, as a vague reference, not yeah. stylistically, but just in terms of the the idea that like, oh yeah, but then then they played it live and like you know, oh okay, well we'll file. I I just felt I really knew in my heart of hearts that they were more than capable of doing it and that it would just sound authentic and and raw if they mm. did it like that. And that rawness is going to offset some of the prog. Uh, not you mm-hmm. know what there should be no stigma because. No, prog is great. Yeah, but we didn't. I think we didn't necessarily want it to go that direction stylistically. And I think the rawness uh, of us playing it, and also some of the guitar sonic choices. I remember when Joff went off on his Stooges Funhouse vibe in that yep. little section for a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, I think yeah, that that kind of like took it into its own direction and mm-hmm. made it more Wolfalis. The fact that we were playing it rather than you know like incrementally yeah. piecing these moments together yeah. and stuff and it, it, and the push and pull of tempo uh, and stuff is what helps it to kind of flow rather than it be if it was just to the thing the whole time I think it would yeah. be, it'd be pretty relentless right you wouldn't I don't think it would have the same charm yeah but it's interesting because in order to achieve a one take of visions of a life you've got to put in an awful lot of prep work both yeah. in yeah. terms of mapping out what all those different movements are going to be, but also then rehearsing them, yeah, yeah. nailing that so that then you can go and perform it in one go. That, but that was the good thing about when we got to LA, the first two weeks we spent in, Justin, you're going to have to remind me the name 64. of the studio, 64 Sound. Yeah, st- uh, six, 64 Sound in Highland Park. Um, that was our sort of pre-production phase two where we actually were recording everything as, as multi-tracks. So when the band finally moved out to LA and we reconvened, we were able to refresh ourselves, but also do a multi-track where we were able to, you know, assess everything on a more micro level because there was a lot of very performed music on this album. So we built in a lot of time in order to accommodate that occurring. So that's what that second phase was, was for. Mm. I mean, those gear shifts in Visions of a Life, the way that you change yeah. the tempo is, is pretty amazing. I mean, if, if we're to break it down, listen to sections, yeah. what, what sections, where do we start on that, Justin? Well, you, didn't you already play some of the first movement? We did, yeah, from the demo. Yeah, yeah, yeah was, right. So that was something that Joff had come up with and brought in, and Ellie switched the lyrics mm-hmm. around. That was like, that was kind of the drone rock bit that we knew we had. And then, yeah, as you know, it followed. We knew we were going to we want those stabs to sort of like intersect the if bit you, that would come next. So, dun, dun. if you play it yeah. from them, you, you kind of get towards the end of that section into the, what we were calling the third movement, which I already can't stand myself saying out loud. <laughs> Mo- movement really freaks <laughs> yeah. me out. Yeah, it's right around the two minute mark, is where you have those 
quote unquote stabs that yeah. then transition into the second movement where, where the drum pattern is where we have a complete like blank piece of paper essentially. Yeah. Like that's that's a good sequence of transitions. So those are the stabs that yeah. you're talking about, which are which are in the original demo, which we were playing a minute yeah. ago. But we kept those, and then obviously here. I think also, like, just speaking from the drum point of view, we knew that obviously because we we're going to do it in one take, you can't change the kit around, like changing snares and things. But it required almost tonal changes, so we just had to work out exactly what we knew we could manipulate later like and it's all the same kit but using the room mics and stuff later on we managed to sort of suck it all in and it's quite like boxy rehearsal room almost to start with and now it's just like pushed in and it's more like post-punk and it's just galloping It's actually a moog that starts just back there as well, which is almost the, the sweep that starts. Yeah, there's some cool s samples we overlaid in there. Yeah. Electronic drums. And this passage is so fun. So what do you call this section? Which movement is this? We're still in, we're in movement two. Maybe we're in B, though. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a passage that Elliot had from a previous demo. And this is the bit we rehearsed quite a bit, me and Theo. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just going dun 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 for like, you know. Now we're in the Baroque section. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, we are. <laughs> and it, you can hear, like, obviously, this is the bit we knew if it stayed exactly the tempo before it, it was going to be too daft almost. But actually, it's like has intent now. It's a bit evil. It's a bit more crampsy, thrashy. Do you remember all those uh, smacking of the springs on the spring reverb yeah. that are happening in there? Well, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know that I love that moog that goes whoop. As a point, oh, there, yeah. are, there are also like a bunch of moogs and things that are doing different work at this point on top of the live yeah. stuff that's going on, which kind of in a way are like a, they help it. They're, they're an ornamental kind of, they're just driving mm. everything and reinforcing it, which are really fun so, to play with my feet live, Justin. Thanks for that. I, I forgot I've, about I've that. I've noticed. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so now we've transitioned into the third movement. Right. Where the vocals come in here. And again, we've changed the picture of mm. all the microphones of the drum kit, for instance, to, yeah. to set the, the different scene. There's an acoustic guitar somewhere in here, right? Or have I made that up? Yeah, there is. 
Tuttle Tap. And that bit was just, when we got that bit right, we were like, all right, sick. Cause that's that's when we got Stonehenge lowered down. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Justin were on the patch called Fucked Brass, which you can kind of hear now. It's oh, just yeah. a, it's a contact brass sample. Yeah, let's, hear, let's hear a bit of Fucked Brass then, if we can. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, it's a MIDI contact keyboard sound <laughs> processed. I love it. So yeah, That's... the people that recorded in that studio is just ridiculous. But mm -hmm. we mainly heard about the Chili Peppers while we were there. Right. The Foo Fighters <laughs> love to tell us about the Chili Peppers. They were yeah. next door and they kept poking their heads in and telling us that. I think. This, but it's crazy. It's like the fucking Beach, Beach Boys, Boys did stuff there. Like right. Frank Sinatra did shit in another Nat room. King Cole. Yeah, you know, you're in there, you're just like, this is, why are we here? Like, we <laughs> yeah. get them out. Yeah, I keep thinking people are going to be come in the room and be like, what the hell are you doing here? Stop bothering Justin. Go away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, thing that, the thing that's funny about that, though, is that, you know, a place like East West or others like it, they're not prohibitively expensive at yeah. all, even for a mid-level band to go yeah. into. I think, I think there's a preconception that it's not affordable. So, people stay away, you know, or they think it's above their station in some way. It's weird, you know, but it's very accessible to record in places like that in, in LA, for instance. You know? mm. I mean, the day we got there was actually us and then I was saying the drums and like Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins came in, they're like, oh, real drums, man. Like, I haven't seen real drums with another band for ages. And they're looking at the drums, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I walked to the next room and John Legend's like, hey, sup? I'm like, oh, hey, John Legend. And then, like, Lando <laughs> Ray's having a cigarette with Joff, and, like, Joff's like, oh, hey, Lando Ray. And then Queens of Stone Age turn up, and everyone's that's just, right. like, having barbecue. And I was like, you know what, it's actually pretty cool. <laughs> 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 that seems amazing. Take my money, I don't care. <laughs> But um, it is an interesting point about it being moderately priced and those things and I think that mm. that awareness needs to be spread a little bit more because you do hear the cliche of everyone can make stuff in their bedroom but there are certain things you can't create in your bedroom yeah. and atmospheres and textures you know. and for and it's not a gajillion pounds to, no. to use that and the, there are places closing down and there are places that I mean London suffers pretty bad around yeah. here and um, I think mm. there is an interesting harmony on this record of stuff that is from demos and is also from places like East West with, right. with an incredible, mm. you know, whatever snare drum and whatever bass amp you're using. And um, I think I, I, one of the things I think we're proud of is that there is a harmony of those two things a bit in this record as well. Yeah. yeah. I do want to speak to that just briefly, if, you, if I may. The, the thing about using materials from demos, I think, is tricky for some producers maybe because I, I'm, I'm going to guess that they feel compelled to replace it like mm. as if it's the part yeah. of the job description but you know you can chase endlessly trying to replicate a moment or a sound or whatever and you'll go nowhere because the initial impulse was the thing that actually created the idea and mm. to use material from demos I just really wish and hope that more mainstream people or I don't know pop producers or whatever or bands even would get over that as a having, yeah. having a complex about that because yeah. there's no line anymore there's 
that, that whole sequence of events is quite blurry. And so if there's something that you can harvest from an earlier recording of a, of a song and use in the final and that keeps a through line together, I think that's really important to do. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think in this case, it's really interesting because clearly the demo had all the ideas. Mm. And it did. then the yeah. getting in the studio was about realizing and capturing those yeah, ideas exactly. in the best possible way that you could do. Mm. And and that clearly happened because you put in so much work into it and you know, improved yourselves as musicians and as a band in so doing. Because mm. that's probably something you didn't necessarily think was consciously going on, but yeah, suddenly yeah. you come out of it. It is, and it is interesting thinking about also at an age where you're transitioning in terms of your life. You know, we were like 24. 425 when we're making it or a little bit around that and like you're kind of trying to you found your people are telling you you're in this position as a musician but if you're feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome then some of these songs and some of the processes that are happening on those songs i i love listening back to because i can see here now things have changed now it's mm. so cool the process was very enjoyable as a musician <laughs> yeah yeah which is fantastic and visions of life went on to be the title track i mean mm -hmm. when you when you made a uh, massive anal bleach tack i mean had you any idea i mean do, do, i think the visions of a life aspect is not people quite a lot of the time thought when they saw that it was seven minutes 50 that we had that you would just make the album would be called the seven minute 50 track but i think the visions of the a life aspect alludes more to the fact that these are all kind of stories mini narratives microcosmic little worlds these songs and the idea of visions of a life of the visions of what you might become as you grow up and mm. a lot of explorative themes lyrically and stuff are to do with aging and mm. like you know aging as Not a young much. woman and entering the world so i think that it was more the name the, the name of that and how yeah. you come to it i remember right. actually one of the points we actually were kind of against calling it visions for life because we thought people would maybe yeah. think that we were like so immensely proud that we managed <laughs> to do a song over four minutes so it's like <laughs> the whole thing is going to be named in honor of that one track we did live yeah but no it wasn't it's just like this it's an umbrella phrase you know it's very broad but it was it's, it's a nice mm. yeah it just fits so well with the with the other songs as well as just like perfect title for that track you know and when we came to the find the cover I think we kind of saw it more but there was an alternative cover where she's reading a book so maybe it was more that <laughs> you may have heard us talk about tape it before and if you haven't then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you tape it is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it 
forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. But it's interesting you say, Theo, about that you know, the, many of the songs are little like mm. little stories, little narratives. And, and the next song we're going to look at fits into that very nicely, I thought. Formidable Cool mm. is the next song we're going to have a listen to. So we'll listen to the, the finished version okay. and then have a listen to how it all Began. began. That was the first song we uh, we made. Was it? It was the first song we started tracking, me and you, I think. Yep. The me and you in question was Theo looking at Justin <laughs> through the powers of the internet. Oh, no, no, no. Me and Justin were up to some... <laughs> no one knew what me and Justin were up to. <laughs> <laughs> He's got you on your knees with that formidable call. Infected you like a disease with It was such a good first song to start with because we really caught a vibe in the studio as well. Yeah, yeah, it does, right? It was just so fun to like, again, it's from the drums perspective, so much like ridiculous gear to play with that like you weren't settling for anything. You're just like, if it wasn't quite right, we could chase it a bit more like a crunchier snare drum. Just little things like that. We were like... that's inter- And is that just swapping one out for another? Yeah, we, yeah, we had uh, Mike Fasano, like a... Just drum consultant, legend. yeah. <laughs> drum if you want any yeah. drum in the world, or yeah. you're looking for a sound, that man will find you it. I reckon, yeah, or he'll be yeah. part of the process for sure. Yeah, he's worked on loads of like massive records, and he's, you know, I'm, I'm probably selling him short compared to what he's done. But he had like it's an array of your classic like drum stuff as well, but then like weird cymbals and percussions and things, and like it's a bit of a dark art to drum tuning. But he would just be like, oh yeah, you want it a bit like this, a bit like that, and could just you know speed things up. I remember this song being a particular challenge because you you had that sort of papery, um, breakbeaty sounding yeah. snare of the verses, and then we needed it to also have some heft in the chorus. So when you dug into it, it still felt like it it rocked, you know. Yeah. So that's that that is a dark art because that's a that's a hmm, those things are can be mutually exclusive. Yeah. So it's a bit tough to get that to happen sometimes. So you know, getting someone like around who's helping tune drums and stuff is. Is a luxury, but man, for this album, it ended up being essential. So yeah, that yeah, was, that was cool. We, we were kind of thinking about Can for the band Can mm. for like the yeah. drum sounds for like this and flirting with it with stuff like beautifully unconventional and and y- don't delete the kisses. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how did this vary from the demo then? What did the demo sound like? We have that, I think. Yeah, it's kind. Of, I can't even close, remember now. <clears throat> and so this was. It's not a world apart. No. Mm. So it, it's slower. Yeah. And the demo gave that impression of drums that, I don't know, intimate, vintage, yeah. small in the verse. Well, this is a live demo of us at the Fortress. So this isn't MIDI drums and stuff. This is us playing. Right. Yeah. 
mean, you can hear there sort of like the difference in what we eventually achieved and compared to that and like the sizes of things and reverbs and things. But we just had everything sort of crudely mic'd up and we could just put, this is just like recorded straight to logic, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so in comparison to, say, Visions of a Life, this is much more straightforward. Put yourselves in a room, work out how this you was can one of the record ones it, that we record it, yeah. and then, then work out how you can yeah. do it much better. Yeah, exactly. And it was nice because we, I think we knew where we stood with it, so to start the ball rolling with the recording process, you know, like to get rid of, shake some of the fear off of, of being like, oh, shit, well, maybe we're not going to, we're under time constraints or whatever, and we started with this, and the ball was rolling pretty quickly, I think. I do remember one bit of us trying to f do this can sound in, in the drum department and I got kind of like, I guess even like quietly obsessive over it, like we've got to get that fucking snare drum sound that we mm -hmm. could all kind of hear but no, we couldn't quite get it. I think it was this song, I might be making this up, but but Blake Mills, the producer, was recording with John Legend in the other studio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's friends with Justin, they go way back and, you know, he's a great producer as well, done some really awesome records and he came in and... I think we played him just the solo. That it was the bass and the drums we were working yeah. on. And he just said, right. oh, it's cool. It sounds like Can. And we were like, yeah. fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, as it. As if <laughs> I had you like gone round the corner, Justin, and paid him like a dollar yeah. to the... <laughs> 20 and paid yeah. Mills a lot more dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, mate. Yeah. I just remember that being just like, oh my God, as if that actually just happened. Like, yeah. you know. Fantastic. Yeah. So mission accomplished. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. at least in, to Blake's ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting when you listen to like the whole album and, and we've just been listening to Visions of a Life and Formidable Cool and the way that Ellie's vocals are used. Yeah. You no, know, um so Formidable Cool is completely different again from Visions of a Life and you know the way you record that when when you make those decisions about well actually we want the vocal to be much more up front and on mm. on top in this song or in this one we want it to sound no way back in the mix, so yeah. it's almost inaudible. Now, how do you make those decisions? Do you is that something you all kind of are chipping in on? I think every there's an open dialogue all the time with people mm. in terms of those in broad stroke decisions. But I think a lot of the vocals were done in a different environment to East West, right, Rustin? I think yes. Although there were fragments of things that were kept yeah, yeah. from the East West sessions, but yes, um, <clears throat> there's something innately. Th mm. Forgive the word, another one that's maybe taboo, but theatrical mm. about even yeah, a song sure. like this. Yeah. Where, you know, face value is that this song is simpler and a bit more straightforward. But in fact, from my vantage, I, I was definitely sweating the whole time getting this picture correct because even this song has extraordinary dynamics. Mm. And um, yes, speaking to Ellie, I'm, I'm speaking about Ellie's vocal, the song has very very extraordinary vocal extraordinarily different vocal treatments from section to section perhaps more so than gosh any song on the album yeah i agree very very unique section to section and so it was recorded with ellie as one in one go but then in order to achieve certain things there were times that we would need to zoom in and record say a couplet of lines or something in order to get the exact right tenor of the thing you know mm -hmm. Um, so yeah mm, that's interesting can we hear those vocals in any of those sections to see how mm -hmm. you achieve that so right here 
For instance, if you listen to the verse. He's got you on your knees with that formidable call. Very close, intimate, with a very specific treatment as well. Infected you like a disease with that formidable call. I know it's all an act. I can practically hear the pen planning. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah, that's dope. So you have, I know it was all an act. I can practically hear the pen planning. You can hear her getting quite a bit more shouty there, but so you put her on separate tracks for those, but underneath it, and this might not be apparent to the, you know, when you're listening to the final version, the through line of the more narrative talky vocal is still there. It's still present, right? So she's still doing that, but on top of that, she does this more extreme thing. And then later on, it gets even more extreme because there's, she separates out into this more choral thing in the choruses, which gets more and more dense, in fact, as the song goes on. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a sample of that. And I knew it was all an act. I could practically hear the pen planning. This is the chorus, or the pre-chorus, rather. Yeah, I knew it was all an act. So you can hear all these different treatments. God never needed another standing. <laughs> Sounds amazing. So that gives you an example of the range that it's just encapsulated in one piece of music, you know. Mm. So it's um, it's fun to try and figure out the puzzle of how to get that all rendered properly. But um, in terms of how to do it, the initial thing—that's the trick, right? How, what, what do we do first? It's it, you know, it, it's a chicken and egg scenario sometimes. Yeah, mm. I mean, this is the producer's brain, Justin, isn't it? You have to hold all these different parts in your head at the same time. Yes, but I want to say, and this is not false modesty, that that Wolf Alice is a band of four producers. Mm. So mm. It, it works to my benefit to have the checks and balances of the Wolf Alice co-production team together. Like, honestly, like the, this, I, I couldn't have done this if they didn't have all these ideas in, in place, you know, it, it, or think of things on the fly that were solving a problem or coming up with something revelatory. Like it was entirely collaborative. I was not at any point being a Svengali, like driving the boat and may bending them to my will. Never, not at any juncture. <laughs> yeah. So um, again, that's not some attempt at me being falsely modest. It's, it's me saying that literally that the Wolf Alice production aesthetic does largely come from Wolf Alice and it's it's very very important that they're recognized as such because the way that you know the cinema of all this and the density of this and then suddenly the the non density of it or the the very novel sonic pictures or the the more surprising elements all this stuff you know this is this is what comes from a band who's firing on all cylinders you know yeah So it'd be good to move on to St. Purple and Green, but it does kind of link in with Middle Cool in terms of the vocals. I mean, because it starts with this this yep. heavenly choir of Ellie's. Yeah. You know, and is that just Ellie, just multi-tracked? Or that, are, are you all singing on that? That, that is, is... That's just Ellie. Is, mm. That's yeah. from EC. That's, an, that's going back to one of Justin's wow. points a minute ago, which is yep. that's just cut off the top of the original demo. It was something that... Ellie is really good with vocals. Like, it's an under, oh understatement God. of, like, I can't even begin to explain. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, it does things, like, almost with a giggle, which you're like, you do realise that's really, like, unbelievably <laughs> good. Yeah, she's, she's quite cavalier. She's quite cavalier about that sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Amazing, that's the know? word. And it's just, that was one of those things we just, 
almost did with like a she did like a smirk when we were back in East City and then we were just like well that's amazing we have to put that in somewhere and we just stuck it on the front of the track <laughs> <laughs> with all the subtlety we could we just yeah. made it at the beginning so, so which would if we have a listen to should we be listening to the demo of Saint Purple and Green to hear the Heavenly Choir uh, or I've got an Uber coming in five minutes, but I'll just have to bolt. Theo's actually been fired from with Alice, so <laughs> right, this, is, this is a bit of live firing right yeah. now. I have a football match to play in very far across London, <laughs> and I apologise. So you got to go. But thank you very much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go break my break my arm, so I can't talk. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> That's my style. No. <laughs> don't oh, do that, yeah. Theo. Okay, well, but, I'll, I'll, uh, leave we'll you in you the, I'll leave you in the safe hands of Joel and Justin, who are geniuses. So. Yes. Right on, dude. Speak to you later, Justin. I'm going to text you after this. Score a goal for okay. us. So um, should we have a listen to the demo of St. Purple and Green then? Yeah. If, if the Heavenly Choir is the, exactly the same, that's kind yeah, of Yeah, if this is the East City one, then this should be the one where Ellie did this absolutely ridiculous solo choir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, again, it was. It's not too dissimilar to what we aimed to achieve with when we went with Justin. It was definitely the worst demo we made. <laughs> and actually, because it was a bit like this, I mean, Justin was the only person that had any foresight with it because every time we showed it to the label or, or something, they were like, "We don't really get it." But we weren't mm-hmm. hearing this. We were hearing how we were jamming it and stuff, which was obviously a bit more towards what we've achieved on the record and we all all four of us like we we just knew we loved it and we couldn't necessarily put our finger on why and i kind of forgot mm-hmm. we had the tune sometimes we had like a running order of songs and we'd go through and then we'd get to some purple and green and be like oh yeah we still got some purple and green which i know mm-hmm. has something in it but we never managed to like capture it until much later on and so i don't think like our labels not just not to pick holes in them were ever really like no oh, it's okay you know i don't know if it's really an album trap, but then I realized listening to it now, that's what they were hearing. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's difficult for people to see the forest for the trees sometimes, and, yeah, and and it's difficult for me to see, see the forest. But again, it, it, this song took shape when I heard you guys play it in a room, yeah. Um, and again, this song is no small feat in terms of how it's put together because it's mm. extraordinarily dynamic, and then it has a whole other movement later on in the song and yeah. you know the bridge the bridge is extremely different from the rest and you know entirely different drum treatment but i think by the way that the choir in the front of the song was possibly augmented with other things that we did later oh yeah right um, because so i have that here made um, more massive 
Maybe. I, I can't remember. Maybe mm. I should play a, a yeah, little slice yeah. of that for you. Yeah, definitely. So here it is. Yeah, it's largely the same. But then, you know, when the band comes in, the track has a bit more muscle. Mm. And the sounds end up being, you know, more focused and yeah, meaty and whatever. So, yeah. I remember as well this being the song I think that pre-production helped the most, in my opinion. But my, one of my favorite moments of the whole recording process was just when you and Theo worked out the bass line in the verse. Mm-hmm. And because it, it was just it was just root notes, I think originally to be honest with you, and just doing the boom, 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 That's, boom, and then oh, yeah. ju- you suggested this passage with Theo, and it suddenly oh, yeah. took this like orchestral under, like it was like Echo and the Bunny Man or the Cure kind of vibe suddenly came into it. It's just that boom, 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 oh, boom. Yeah. I just love that melody. Do you know where that is, Justin? You're able to. Yeah, play in it? fact, I could I could solo up the bass and drums in that zone for you if you wouldn't mind. If I take the second verse. I mean, this sounds like can. Yeah, yeah. It does to be fair. I was just so happy when I heard those notes. And then the little drop. And he plays these chords, these very lush, deep chords yeah. on top of this drum picture. Quite nice. One thing we'd done almost by accident when we were making a, a version of it in the fortress was just reversing the snares, and you can kind of hear it. And then, and then the hardest bit. Of and the then we get to this. Possibly my favorite moment on the entire album. Yeah, same. I struggled so much to play this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it but you killed me. It, man. That's a Mellotron in the back that, again, was something we'd done at the Fortress. We had just a, a crude Mellotron patch and I was on the keys. And it just, we knew this bit was had to go like this, but we didn't know how to do it. And I just had this Mellotron thing at home that I was obsessed with at the time. I was like, Mellotron guys, Mellotron, we've got to get Mellotron on the album. I would have put Mellotron on pretty much every song if I was allowed at the time. It's kind of like scary, but it's also kind of like Disney and it's also kind of sad and it's also uplifting. Right. And it's my favorite bit on the album. At 
there's still a passage of music that I find quite hard to believe we've done. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure there is people listening out there be like, well, I can play that easily. But it's just <laughs> such an achievement, like sonically and playing wise for well, us. You know? It's subtle. It's yeah. subtle. The, the difficulty lies in, in the very slow dynamic change of that whole passage, mm. right? That's one of the things that we had to keep in mind is how do we keep a groove but have it feel like with every bar that passes, there's an incremental a dynamic yeah. um, lift going on, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, do you just, because there are quite a few different changes in St. Purple and Green. And when you mm. listen to the words and, and look at the lyrics, and it's quite a tender song, really. Yeah. You know, it's a it's lot of affection. Yeah. And, and it could have been given a quite a different kind of treatment according to the meaning and feeling yeah. of the song. And yet you still have all the different power range of, of Wolf Alice. You know? mm. So you, there are points where you let rip, but then there are all these other bits as well. I mean, in a general scope, I think the four of us appreciate emotion doesn't always have to come from quiet. And to be serious, it can be loud. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I think people think if something's quite quiet and introspective, then it, there's like an intelligence to it that doesn't exist if something's loud and distorted and crashing yeah, and that's right. smashing into things. And I think the one thing we wanted to get away from is maybe the thing that people describe us as most when they're being lazy, which is like a rock vibe you know i think we knew it was going to have distortion it was going to have symbols it was but it's not a rock song you know yeah no it's really interesting because let's say what theo was saying earlier about the the range of subject matter in a way for the whole of the album no it is about aging but obviously you know that relates to to you all or to ellie but she's talking about her her grandmother and and so it it covers Mm. a a whole life in many ways yeah totally being too corny about it when she said it was and i hope i'm not wrong here but like when her grandma was suffering towards the end like with certain dementias and things that you'd see the purple and green that's Mm. kind of where and there's lyrics about the bowbells and stuff in there as well like this was the song that when we saw the album cover i was like we have to use that album cover because that's exactly how this song was sounding to me i couldn't it's like haunting and ghostly and familiar and weird and you know some purple and green isn't a single or anything but it's such an important song for this record in in many ways and a touchstone for many things as well yeah because it adds another dimension and it adds an extra element to the Mm. whole feel and range of the record and Um, the pre-production sessions with justin were just so fruitful it really it you know our reference points were things like disney and fantasia and they weren't they weren't like punk and like indie you know yeah so you would be drawn into these conversations justin Totally. Of course, yeah. yeah. They were they they were key, you know, mm. and they started early, and they had to because they were going to inform the launch of any mission, right? Mm. Yeah, totally. And um, you know, with these lyrics, it was a matter of just being a very good listener and gathering all the intel I could about what the lyrical picture was, but also then what the band was saying as a whole about how the song should be presented and, and putting it all together rather than sitting there and going like, well, let's, you know, let's break down the meaning of the second verse. I don't do that. That's too literal. It's too on the nose. So for us, it was all about the subtlety of what we could glean from our relationship, the five of us, right? Mm. And how we could take, you know, these important conversations and make them mean something in terms of how something's rendered musically. That's, that's, a, that's a subtle process Mm -hmm. and um it's my job to simultaneously stay the hell out of the way of whatever's going on and also to encourage a result so Mm. it's a a dance really isn't it yeah exactly you know like when someone like ellie brings a song like that with lyrics like that and it was quite early on 
you know, at least for me, I have, there's a responsibility you have to like push that emotion, you to represent that emotion like the most you can on the record, you know. But no, it, right. it, 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 it was, yeah, it was one of the songs that I, we just couldn't put our finger on why the four of us were so buzzed about it because most people we showed like management and stuff were like, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. But they kind of maybe heard it in that form, which we did originally. And then, you know, then to listen back, even just now, just listen back to some of those things where we got it from, like, I'd be distraught if it had fallen by the wayside, you know? Mm. I, I didn't I didn't actually believe in it initially, musically. Oh, there you go. I, I believed <laughs> in it lyrically. No, no, I'm yeah, just, well, I'm yeah, just yeah. being very forthright. Do you remember? No, no, I was sort of ambivalent about the song. I couldn't remember. It, I wasn't going to accuse you of being on, no, on the label course. side. but uh, No, it wasn't no. about being on the label side. It was <laughs> I know, me I know, just I know. having my own, my own concept of like, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's just uh, there's something about the... the, the 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 uh, the performance of this it just mm. feels like kind of like everything shoehorned together and it doesn't feel yeah. seamless it doesn't feel well, like that, a continuum it doesn't you know and the, the, that was my main beef with the song right mm. and not the not the lyrical concept and picture but anyway you were saying well mm. you can, cause there is like a, another version like a stodgy fortress live demo floating around somewhere I think maybe that was equally as bad representative of where I wanted to go with it. But was there a point with St. Purple and Green where there was that shift or were you, once you had started recording it, did you realise, actually, no, we're getting this? For me, it was that bass changing, which I've mentioned before. I just absolutely loved the way that if everything just floated, Mm. but there was, it's that end distortion guitars, like you can kind of hear that there's a small crunch and suddenly it comes in. I'm just, that's just one of my favorite parts. Those are key. Those are absolutely yeah. key. Yeah. Should we hear that? Is that yeah. possible? Yeah. So in that section, Josh starts out there. All right. And there's a harmony to that part. All right. Mm. Them. There's a distortion bits. Yeah. Because it's a strange distortion. Like, I can hear more of, like, the sparkle in it than I can mm-hmm. the string, if you know what I mean, which is why I really like it. And that, it's just that chords underneath it. And that woo. Yeah. Even the tone on that lead guitar is very emotive to me because it has almost like a synthetic kind of. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. It's just like that's, so rounded. Yeah, that's DI guitar. So that's done without oh, yeah. an amp. That's that's the, that's like the um, the fuzz going straight into the desk, right? So it yeah. has that very very like uh, what's the Beatles reference? Uh, Revolution. Yeah, that John oh, Lennon sick. guitar okay. sound. You know what I mean? That yeah yeah yeah. Straight into the desk, super blistering, very very um, toppy situation that you, you just can't get that out of an amp. So that yeah. was a cool way to get to get that sounding brittle and alien mm. and kind of cool. Yeah, it's been very cool hearing about these songs in this way and hearing them broken down in this way. Um, we also have some questions which uh, are more general, um, mm. some from uh, listeners and some that we um, uh, ask people each time we do this. And yeah. some are, are kind of production notes 
Um, so the, one of those first ones is, uh, what is the best piece of advice you've been given on your respective journeys as producers and musicians? So this is for mm. Justin and for Joel. And, and Joel representing the band in a way, if there were particular things that you know one of the others has had said to them. The, uh, that they all have to listen to what I want to do. <laughs> That's the best advice they've ever had. <laughs> no, I don't know. You know, I didn't learn the drums conventionally. You know, it was just kind of what I did to be in the live format of that. So I guess it, I haven't got any advice in that sense. It was like a budding drummer. But one thing that I've, you know, I just can't fault is just to follow your gut. And something we did with this record, you know, and because of Justin was we could follow our gut and pursue it and not hit a glass ceiling or hit a barrier because everyone was up for collaborating. There was no stupid ideas. There was no, you know, it, it was, uh, that sounds like a bit of a hippie thing to say, but it was a very freeing recording process and, and writing process. And it just felt like an evolution for us. Like a st every album should just be a stepping stone to the next one in many ways, mm. you know? And I, there's so much I can take away from this, this process but just following your gut and being brave with each other is hard but it's worth worth doing yeah and what about you Justin because you've had such a, a varied and eclectic uh, life in music that was there a piece of advice that you received early on that that helped you realize that um I don't know I think that um I distilled advice from a lot of different very influential people um, especially being a band guy on the other side of the glass for, for so many years before I embarked upon production. And so with all that sort of built up experience of hearing how people work correctly and incorrectly, I guess, in a way, you know, um, I, I learned a lot, but there, there was always the advice, the more, the most pervasive advice that, that helped me through is, was the concept of trying to be the best listener you can. And, listening not just to words but to emotions and to the subtlety of the room and the circumstances and the other thing is like it's been very important to me to let people drive i got the most amount of satisfaction with wolf alice and with others by seeing them execute a concept so i i don't know if that sounds really kind of paternal or whatever but it, it's it's become a thing that is Frankly, I think kind of a hallmark of, of my career and hopefully something that, that people come away with when they work with me. You know, it's something I really want to engender, that spirit of freedom of play and freedom of expression and um, ability to, to try and explore as much as, you know, things like time and budget can allow, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, specifically, Justin, is there one plug-in or piece of kit that you could not live without Ooh. in your role? Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, there's certain plugins that are that, like, you know, we always rely on all that sound toys stuff, like Decapitator and all that kind of stuff. This is hugely useful. But I don't really think there's a piece of kit that I stick by that's like the essential. There might be like a, maybe my ARP 2600 or like a the old AMS delay or the Publison Infernal Machine. Those are like, you know, <laughs> or tape echoes like those are certain things i really love and use all the time but i don't really know i don't really know that i i can i can't do what i do without those things i don't really feel that you know um possessive about it i guess yeah yeah what i like is that people listening to this won't be able to see it but we can see you in your studio 
over in LA and oh, yeah. and in answer to the question looking around thinking hmm is there <laughs> and I love that idea so you actually had a look um, <laughs> did you think at all um, with regard to playing songs live beyond the recording of the album was that ever a factor this has been like the eternal mm. question with Wolf Alice of That's right. one how are we going to do this live because we all like have a huge appreciation for just the song and like what's we said this with Justin and Justin we heard us say this a million times like yeah oh yeah but what is best for the song in the recording is the most important thing for an album unless we like one day choose to do an album which is just purposely a stripped back you know rocky kind of you know punk album whatever fine but that's never been our intention it's always just been we're going to collect the songs that mean the most to us and we're going to do the justice to that track and then you have a horrible, horrible time trying to work out how four of you can play 35 different things. But to be honest, you know, <laughs> with something Theo was saying earlier about when he says he plays them with his feet is mm. because Joff and Theo have a a foot sampler system thing where you, we have like one shots and stuff like the, yeah. actually, you know, Sim Purple and Green's a good example. There's like the sounds. The big yeah. In the, cor- in the instrumental courses. Like Theo yeah. triggers those with his feet and Joff plays mm. like, um, chiming organ things from on bros and stuff like that. So we've had to adapt because we refuse to use backing tracks in any shape or form, but we also refuse to not layer 200 guitar tracks in our albums. <laughs> so uh, amongst other things. So like, yeah, we've had to work it out, you know. Theo's got a little keyboard and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can work it out after yeah. after the fact. Get the songs right. Totally. And you then know. you can worry about the so- you, you know, the, the album's eternal, you know. Mm. But just on the back of that, I want to say that like when I see a Wolf House live and I hear them playing the songs that we've made together, that the, they do have a keen awareness of the song. In other words, there are elemental parts of it that need to be played. And there are a lot of ele- you know other aspects to it that, that just don't need to be played. So yeah. in other words, the tendency would be to like get a, a computer rig and have all that stuff on backing tracks, right? Because, oh, we need this, we need it. Well, in fact, you don't. In yeah. fact, let's just get to what actually helps render the song with the correct emotion, with the right amount of excitement in the in the venue, and that's what we need, and and nothing more, nothing less. And that's that's smart because otherwise, there's this tendency to to need to, um, especially as music gets poppier and poppier, you know, on the spectrum of music, it, to have everything intact and everything at play, and you know, worry about like where things are panned and stereo. Well, yeah. you know, what? a lot of venues don't even have stereo PA's, so like, who cares, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. So we got a few questions um, from people, Tape Notes listeners. Um, so Ailsa from Carlisle wants to know about the role of producer. How does it change depending on the genre of music you're working on? So was there a difference, for example, between approaching recording visions of a life and, say, the work that you've done with M83 or Air? Or N- Not Really, um, the only thing that may change subtly is just because you're working with maybe two or three people as opposed to a full ensemble, a full band. Um, there may be more developmental time in terms of the blurry line between writing and recording. Um, because, say, for instance, with M83, which is sort of innately more electronic based, but not really. It's actually ends up being played as a band ultimately, but it's just more about the arc of, of time where other than anything in terms of like with one of those projects, for instance, there's not really pre-production. There's not having songs finished with demos that you then play in a room as an ensemble. Right. Mm. So that that's the main difference. Um, And so there's this, 
you know, gradual assembly of a track. And then generally speaking, the, you know, live musicians will then perform on top of this assembly. Whereas with a Wolf Alice type of an album, it's, it's a little bit more just old school. And when I do an album like that, I tend to want to keep it that way. And to, uh, I, I tend to want to have the liveness of it be part of its lifeblood. So I don't try and mix my strategies um, when it comes to the types of albums I do. I, I tend to be more specific in terms of honoring the process of making electronic music when I'm making electronic music. And I tend to be much more band oriented because that's such a keen part of my background anyway, when I'm doing an album that's more like, for instance, Visions of a Life. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Hope yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, and it kind of ties in with the, the next question, which is from uh, Rob from Phoenix, Arizona. How has coming from playing bass with Beck and other bands influenced your style of production? In a way, I think you've touched upon this a little bit already, knowing that being in a band, uh, being on the other side of the glass, as you were saying earlier, has influenced how you approach it now that you're the producer, mm. because you have that band knowledge, don't you? Yeah, I suppose I do. Um I think I'm, it's more about always having a big picture goal in mind. And I do actually think about how a band is going to play something live. Mm. Um, eventually during a record, I start to wonder about that and integrate that into my process. Mm. But I suppose it's just about like, you know, from a bass player, bass players are, when they're good bass players, they tend to be an important bridge between the harmonic and the rhythmic elements of a band. They tend to be that, that intersection of different musical flows. And when a bass player is good, they, they tend to listen. They tend to have this eyes on the back of their head mentality when they, when they do their thing. They can pick up on and perceive the feel of a drummer and act accordingly, and they can be very honoring of a singer at the same time. And th those, you know, they tend to act not autonomously, especially as they go further and further into their careers. I find bass players just become these kind of master listeners. Um, there's many historical examples of that. And, and many of those people end up also producing records. And um, I don't know, I've, I've seen it. It's not just that bass players are great producers. I'm just saying that there are great examples of people who are great bass players that have ended up being great producers because they parlay all of that kind of wisdom into the idea of, of record making. And I can't really articulate it for you in a way that like, this is the thing about being a bass player or being a band person has done for me. It's like asking someone like, well, how did, how do you, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's just hard for me to put a finger on, on what it is. Although I would just say that historically that's what I've seen. You yeah. Know? Yeah, no, but it, uh, I I can see what you're saying, but I think it's very interesting hearing about the idea that uh, you know bass players end up being master listeners. I mean, that's fascinating in it in itself, isn't it? They can do, they yeah. can do, but but also I would just say that people in bands more and more are producing records. Mm. So people that are musicians first, th this didn't used to be the case <laughs> at all. You know, the, the Roy Thomas Bakers of the world were not like dudes in bands all the time. They were, you know, and, and the George Martins of the world, they were, um, you know, engineers and record makers and A&R men and song men and different, they, a whole, you know, like George Martin was classically trained, obviously, and had all this orchestral experience and whatever. But now more and more, and sometimes for the better, not always, a lot of uh, musicians are making records from the musician vantage and it can yield cool results, you know. So I don't know, there's two schools of thought about it, but yes, the, the, there's something more egalitarian about it. There's something more honest about it sometimes when there's just, you know, well, I'm a musician too. I'm not, I don't have like 
I'm not sitting here in my ivory tower sort of, you know, ordaining that you should do this and this or lying on the couch while you perform all this music and give you super general comments. It's there, you know, there's so many people with such talent that are able to use what they've all that acumen of their band experience and making records in a band and, and put that into, into producing. And I, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I think we've got to wrap it up there. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Justin. Um, you've been talking to us from early morning, Los Angeles, California. No problem. Um, it's early evening here in London. Um, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you, Joel. Thank you. And Theo, uh, although you've gone off He's playing gone football. to the football pitch um, And to you, Justin, a real pleasure. Thanks for helping to Thanks, make guys. this happen. And yeah. um, I think we'll go out with uh, another a prime example of Wolf Alice at their finest. If you want to ask a question on a future episode, head over to our Instagram page where you can find out who we've got coming up and also see behind-the-scenes photos of the podcast being recorded. To keep up to date with the latest news from the podcast, go to our website, tapenotes.co.uk, and sign up to our mailing list. If you've enjoyed this episode, there are a number of different ways to help support the podcast. You can subscribe and leave us a review, spread the word by telling your friends about us, but most importantly, you can donate head to our website, click on Donate, and give whatever you fancy. I'm John Kennedy. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.